So we talked a little bit last week at chapel about Rich Peterson. He's a pastor. He's 24 years, Scott's Bluff. He's got a process of how to study the Bible. I think you're going to find this really helpful. He's worked very hard at this. This has been a passion of his for many years. So with that, let's greet Rich Peterson. A standing ovation before I get started. That's not, I don't know if that's good or not. Thank you so much for coming. I want to just uh, let you know I appreciate you being here, even though you're here because the school sent you here. I'm trusting that many of you are here because you want this material. And so uh, thank you in advance for your attention. Thank you for your heart's desire to... Uh, know God's Word better, and uh, I hope that what I'm able to do today and next week is foster that and encourage it and stimulate it uh, more and more. Thank you to Gordon for setting this up, the administration of the school, the teachers for uh, allowing me this opportunity. So there's this adage that we have that says if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, but if you teach him how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. I'm going to teach you how to fish. The pond we're going to fish in is the Word of God. What I'm going to do today and next week is show you how to study Scripture so that you will be able to identify what God is saying in each book of the Bible and each passage within those books of the Bible. So if you picture in your mind a target, if you, if you picture in your mind a, a target with a bullseye in the middle, when we read the Bible generally, we can kind of figure out what the Bible is saying uh, in, a, in a general sort of way. But if we could just narrow our scope to the bullseye and understand precisely what this particular text happens to be saying, then we're way better students of God's Word. Uh, this class is designed to move you in your study of Scripture from uh, the target to the bullseye on the target so that you can say, I know what God is saying in this particular text. And here's God's message in this passage. That's the design of this class. There is a verse that I would like you to uh, look at as we start this morning. And it's uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 that says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, I put my own emphasis on that, and it's the emphasis under correctly handles. So, uh, you want to be someone who correctly handles the word of truth. But of necessity, if there's a correct way of handling Scripture, then there's also an incorrect way of handling Scripture. Of necessity, if uh, there's a right way, then there's a wrong way. I want to teach you the right way. I want to give you a system, a way of looking at Scripture, 
where you happen to know full well this is the right way of approaching the Bible. Now, uh, in this course of, of this day, it's going to get rather long. So what we're going to uh, be studying today, and for a long time, is the subject called exposition. So this thing we're going to be looking at for the course of today and next week is exposition. It's really the work of what we call exegesis. And the work is exegesis, the goal is exposition, but exegesis is the act of ascertaining the original meaning of a text. And I just see I have a typo on there that I'll have to correct. But it's the act of ascertaining the original meaning of a text. What we're going to do is work a process of exposition that allows you to get to the original meaning because what it meant in the beginning is still what it means today. So what it originally meant is still what it means today and we have to be people who figure that out. Now, if you are listening to me and listening carefully, you probably are a little bit skeptical. You're going, who does this guy think he is? Uh, how does he know this is the right way? How can he be so sure that he's got the right way of studying the Bible? And, and uh, you might be sitting there going, eh, I'm not sure I can trust this guy. And I would encourage you to be skeptical at this point in time. You don't know me. You don't know anything about me. You don't know anything about the method I'm going to be teaching you. And it would be wrong of you not to be skeptical at this point. I'm not going to try to change that skepticism. I'm not going to try to convince you that I'm right. I'm going to show you the process of exposition. And in the course of showing you the process of exposition, you're going to, in the end, say, that is right. And I'm going to start to practice it. So I'm not going to try to convince you that I'm right. I'm going to show you the way, and the way is going to convince you that it's right. So you're probably like I was when I was your age. I grew up in a good Christian home in a, a good Christian church in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, if you've ever heard of Awana, Awana started in my home church. We were Club 101. We were the first club in the world. That's my home church. My home church is where Awana started. My pastor was Lance B. Latham. He's the one who designed it. Uh, one of the elders in our church was Art Rohrheim. He was the director of Awana for decades. And uh, I, I was taught in my church that I should read the Bible. Christians should read the Bible. And so I did. I read the Bible. And I would open the Bible and I would uh, say, well, here's what I want to read today and and I would open and start reading, hoping to find something significant. And every now and then, something significant would jump off the page, and I'd underline it, or I'd highlight it, or I'd make some mental note and say, yeah, that was really good. But there were other times, in fact, most of the time, I would, I would open the Bible and read it, and nothing significant seemed to jump off the page. Nothing of any importance happened. So I ended up reading being bored. I ended up reading 
what should have had an impact in my life, uh, but I ended up reading without having had any impact laid upon me. But I did my Christian duty. I read the Bible because that's what Christians do. But it left me empty and really consumed valuable time out of my life in an unproductive way. I read randomly, and it had random results. Now, the problem isn't with Scripture. The problem was with me and the way I was approaching Scripture. In fact, if you uh, were to look at Scripture, uh, uh, this, this particular text, all Scripture is God-breathed. Notice, all Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture was breathed by God to have an impact in our minds, in our hearts, in our characters. And God designed Scripture to do that. But as I read it randomly, it frequently would not do that. It would have no effect on me at all because I didn't have a system. And half the time, the scriptures that I read left me empty. I can tell you that in the years since then, I have learned how to read the Bible rightly. And I can tell you that there is never a time when I read the Bible today without impact. Never. Because in the course of my life, I learned exposition. It happened this way. I was, uh, uh, as I said, I had grown up in a Bible church and I had listened to sermons all of my life, went to youth group, heard sermons all of my life. And I uh, became a youth pastor in 1975. That's how long ago that was. In 1975, I became a youth pastor. And in, in 1976, we hired a new guy. His name was Harry Shields. And he spoke in his candidating sermon his candidating sermon in our church. And I sat there, my jaw was dropping, and I said, this is the first time I've heard God. That's how powerful his sermon was. And we ended up hiring that guy, and I listened to him and listened to him, and every single week the text just came alive. And, and it was like Second uh, Timothy coming true, all scriptures inspired by God. And I listened to this guy and I went, man, I have to know how he does this. And so I went into his office one day, he was the senior pastor, I was the youth pastor, and I said, I want to do it that way, tell me how to do it that way. He said, it's exposition, go to Bible college. <laughs> I went to Moody Bible Institute, I, taught, I was taught exposition. And I've never looked back. I've never looked back. And now every time I read the Bible, it comes alive. So if you're sitting there saying, yeah, I read the Bible because I'm a good Christian, but it doesn't have the impact I think it should have, this class is for you. And I'm guessing that uh, you today are a lot like I was when I was your age. I hope to fix that for you. Years before, it got fixed for me. We're going to do that in two sessions 
uh, two long days today and next week. I want to start this class by uh, looking at your educational process. You're all in high school. You've gone through grammar school and elementary school, and now here you are in high school. And I, my guess is that every single one of you went through the same process of education that uh, every student goes through across our nation. And that is, when you first came to school, your teacher taught you to write, and they, they started writing words. So you probably wrote your name. You learned how to form your name on a piece of paper so that you could put your name on every piece of paper. But it wasn't long before you went from writing words, specific words, to writing sentences. And you moved from writing uh, uh, a word to putting two words together and forming uh, a sentence with those words. And so maybe in Halloween your teacher brought in a pumpkin and said, write a sentence on this pumpkin, about this pumpkin. And you, you wrote, the pumpkin is round and orange. And, and your teacher put a little star on, the pump, on your paper and you felt like an approved worker. You went, yes, I wrote a sentence. But it wasn't long in your educational process uh, before you moved from sentences, and you moved from sentences to paragraphs. And your teacher taught you that a paragraph consists of multiple sentences. And you, you write, you put sentences together, around a particular subject and you form a paragraph with them so that you now have multiple sentences forming one complete thought. And uh, it kind of works like this. You were assigned a paragraph on jumping rope. And uh, jumping rope is fun. You might have written it's great exercise and you can jump rope alone or with friends. And your teacher said, very, very good. That's a paragraph. You put sentences together about jumping rope and you formed a paragraph. Now, if you happen to take that paragraph and you wrote it this way, jumping rope is fun. It's great exercise. You can jump rope alone or with friends. And then you said jumping hurdles is fun too. Your teacher said, no, no, no. You can't have that sentence in this paragraph, because this is a paragraph about uh, jumping rope, not jumping hurdles. If it were a paragraph about jumping, you could do it, but this is a paragraph specifically on jumping rope, and you can't talk about jumping hurdles. Because every paragraph deals with one subject, not two. Every paragraph has to have a common thread running through all of those sentences. And you can't have any sentence that doesn't relate. Merriam-Webster agrees, by the way. Uh, here's Merriam-Webster's definition of a paragraph. It says, a paragraph is a subdivision of a written composition that consists of one or more sentences, deals with one point, or gives the words of one speaker and begins on a new, usually indented line. We don't care about the indented line for today, but we do care about this. Every paragraph deals with one point, and only one point. 
Now, in your educational process, you moved from uh, you moved from writing paragraphs that deal with one point to uh, writing compositions. So, at some point in time, you moved through the educational process from learning to write words to learning to write sentences to learning to write paragraphs until your teachers finally said, "Now you have to write a paper. You have to write a composition." And as you write a composition, you have to write multiple paragraphs about one subject. So a composition now consists of multiple paragraphs, but all of those paragraphs deal with one subject. You can't have a, a paragraph that doesn't relate to the subject in this composition. And so when you came back from summer vacation, your teacher probably asked you to write a paper on what you did over summer vacation. I don't know if they did that, do that with you. They did it with me. I remember as a kid sitting down, writing a paragraph, writing a composition on what I did over summer vacation. I remember that. And, and you could have organized it this way. You could have organized it chronologically. You could have said what I did in June, what I did in July, and what I did in August, and you could have had three paragraphs organized chronologically. You could have had three paragraphs organized thematically. What I did at the beach, what I did in the mountains, and what I did at home. And your teacher would have said, that is perfect. On either way you organized it, they wouldn't have cared because you were writing a, a multi-paragraph paper all consisting on what you did over your summer vacation. You just organized it differently. Now, if you had taken that same assignment and done this with it, your teacher would have said, no, that's not what a composition consists of. What I did at the beach, what I did in the mountains, what I did at home, and what I did over Christmas vacation your teacher would have said, no, this isn't a paper about vacations. It's about what you did over your summer vacation. We don't care what you did at Christmas. And your teacher would have corrected this one because you brought in a paragraph that didn't belong. The subject of every paper was singular. And you couldn't have two subjects in any one paper. You walked through the process of education, and I think, I think every one of you has walked through the process of education in this same way. Now here's my point. God writes this same way. He doesn't follow the rules of communication. He gave the rules of communication. He's a communicating God. He's a relational God. So way back in eternity past, there were three members of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they spoke with one another. They communicated with one another. And then, the, in the beginning, the Word came. In the beginning was the Word. 
the divine communicator. He doesn't follow rules. He designs the rules of communication, and we learn to follow them. But he uses them when he communicates. Now, God's compositions have come down to us as books of the Bible, 66 to be precise. And every composition has a subject. Not multiple subjects, because that's bad communication. A subject. Every composition that God writes speaks of one thought. And it's written in paragraphs, all dealing with one idea around that subject. Using correct sentences and using words. What I'm going to suggest to you is the right way to read the Bible is the same way you were educated to write, only in reverse. You were taught to write words, sentences, paragraphs, compositions. God wrote compositions in paragraphs using sentences and word choice. And as we go to read God's word, we have to understand that he has written to us with a subject. And every paragraph now relates to that subject. And God has written systematically in that same way. And we need to read it systematically. That's the work of exposition. Now, if you're anything like I was, I read it randomly. I didn't look for any subject. I would open the book of Philippians or Galatians or Isaiah and I would start to read and I wasn't trying to figure out uh, what was being said globally in any book of the Bible. I was more worried about these few verses that I happened to read and because of that it left me empty. And I can tell you that now, every time I open the Bible, even today, after being a pastor since 1975, the first thing I do is I try to identify the subject around which this book is written. It's the first step. Because now I know what God's talking about. If you're anything like me, you read randomly. And I'm going to try to get you to read systematically. And you have to first identify a theme, a subject that this book is written to explain. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Um, I don't know how many years ago, it was probably... 30, maybe 25 years ago, as I was developing this class and trying to become better at using this method, uh, I came across a book by uh, uh, Walter Erickson, I think his name was, and it was titled uh, A Layman's Guide to Interpreting the Bible. And in that book he had 24 rules, 24 rules. I'm going to cover three of those rules because these are the three most important rules of the lot. 
in my opinion. Uh, some of them I didn't agree with. Some of them I thought might be good, but far less important. These three that I'm going to cover with you now are extremely important. They're assumptions that you have to bring as you turn to the Bible and start identifying what God has said. And so the first one of those rules is this one right here. Scripture has only one meaning and should be taken literally. So uh, the idea is, is simply this, and it's a big one, but Scripture has one meaning. It can't have multiple meanings. So that meaning, by the way, is uh, the one the author put there. So the author put a meaning there, and you and I are to identify it. So what it simply means is the Bible doesn't mean more than one thing when it was written. So uh, it's like a paragraph. It all deals with one point. Or like the subject of a composition, there's one subject to it. Every time you open the Bible, there is a meaning to that particular text you're reading. And there's not two. There's not two meanings. So if you read a passage and say it means this, and I read a passage and say it means that, at least one of us is wrong. Both of us may be wrong, but at least one of us is wrong because it can't have two meanings. It can only have one. That's the first part of that. The second one, it should be taken literally, just means that you have to follow the patterns of speech. It doesn't mean everything is wooden and literal, like uh, some Sometimes the Bible uses figures of speech, and we have to literally interpret it as a figure of speech. So when Jesus said, I am a door, he didn't mean he's a door, right? A slab of wood. That, no, he, I'm a way in and out of the sheepfold. He was using a figure of speech to represent a way in and out. He didn't literally mean I'm a door. Or uh, the Psalms say, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Well, there's no eyes on me, right? Uh, it's a figure of speech, meaning God is watching his children. And he's looking out for them in the course of their living. It's a figure of speech. And if you're going to read the Bible literally, you have to read uh, according to its literary features and one of those things is figures of speech. So this first rule says that the Bible only has one meaning and not two. And the Bible has to be understood literally. Now I want to explain the one meaning concept a little bit further because this is, this is important and it's important for you to understand in your generation. So in the 1960s, late 1960s and early 1970s, I was in college and I was becoming a teacher and my major was teaching English on the secondary level and I was a liter literature major. And so what I had to do was read books. I read tons of books. And I had to write papers on what I thought the author was saying by this particular book, and so I'd have to read Mark Twain or uh, any of the other popular authors back then, and, and I would have to then write a paper on what Mark Twain was trying to say, or whatever author was trying to say in this particular novel. 
And I was graded depending on how well I represented his text. And I was graded upon how well I actually captured his argument that he was presenting in his paper. The reason those were assignments back in my day is because back in the 1960s and 70s, everyone understood that meaning resided in the hands of the author. Everyone understood that. Meaning rests with the author. And when the author puts something on the page, it's his meaning that's on the page. And the reader's purpose is to read it trying to figure out what the author was trying to say. Uh, by the way, as Christians, that's our view today. But the world has changed since then, and it's gone through two stages. So the second place it moved to, meaning moved from the author to the text. And there came this idea in literature in the 70s, I think it was, where meaning didn't reside with the writer of the material, it resided with the material. So once the writer put the material on the page, it was now free-floating. It wasn't attached anywhere. It, it, it carried its own meaning independent of any author over there. So it doesn't matter what the author was trying to say, it's just what does the text say? Out of that grew this movement in theology called liberation theology. And what happened was the Bible took on an independent meaning from its author. And it worked like this. Liberation theology showed up, and it showed up uh, uh, as this move to freedom. Uh, Christ has set you free. Paul would have meant this very clearly as Christ would have set you free from the Mosaic covenant for righteousness. You're free from the law. We sing a hymn, free from the law, oh happy condition. I don't know if you do. Some people sing that hymn. Free from the law. But since freedom has the text, freedom in the text is free-floating. Theology grabbed it, and in South America, it became freedom from oppression. Not freedom from the law. Not freedom from sin. Freedom from oppression. So, uh, human freedom and the rights of humanity were the purpose of Scriptures talking about freedom. And they, they, took, they hijacked freedom from the law and freedom from sin to freedom from oppression by the ruling class. In America, it wasn't, there was part of that, but not quite so much. But it became the movement, the feminist movement from way back then. And we're the products of that today, by the way. And for all the good that that movement did, their theology was bad, and their theology was bad in this way. Uh, Freedom from the law and freedom from sin became freedom from oppression from male domination. So women have to get free from male domination because God wants women to be free from male domination. Now, for whatever good the, the feminist movement has done, and they've done a lot of good, by the way, 
uh, Scripture does not talk about the liberation movement. It's not talking about the feminist position in that way. And it's not talking about freedom uh, for women or the oppressed in any way. So I don't know if you remember back when uh, the whole discussion of President o Obama uh, came up with the church he was going to, but when he was a candidate for the presidency, you'll re you might not remember, but if you were old enough, you do. There was this huge discussion of the church he went to because the church was radical. It was, it was radical from most people's perspective. And the news, newscasters actually went and interviewed Obama's pastor. And I remember distinctly watching the, the, watching the show, and the, the uh, uh, pastor of Obama's church said, you don't understand, we're liberation theologians. And that settled the discussion for him. And he was the product of the movement from meaning resting in the hands of the author to being a free-floating text. Uh, understanding literature has moved one step further than that in recent years, and you're the product of this, by the way. It's moved from the author to the text, and now meaning resides with the reader. So, it is thought that when you read a particular text, whatever text it is in the Bible or Mark Twain, it doesn't matter which one, you get to say, well, here's what it means to me. Here's what it means to me. And so, you get to say, here's what it means to me, and someone over here gets to say, and here's what it means to me, and no one ever says either view is wrong. They might be totally contrary perspectives. They might be totally different. Uh, but no one gets to say, here's what it means to me, and be wrong. So it could have tons of meanings, depending on who's reading the text. It can mean anything. And so that has actually filtered into the church. And if you think to various times when you're in small groups and you're reading a passage together or uh, in whatever setting, Sunday school, uh, one of the questions that gets asked right away is, well, what does this mean to you? And someone gives their opinion. Then you go to the next person, well, what does this mean to you? And they give their opinion. And even in the church, we've subtly been moved to think that meaning rests with the reader. And it can mean anything you want it to mean. That's why when you're talking to unbelievers, they just look at you and go, oh, that's the Bible. It's just a matter of interpretation. It's just how you're interpreting it. It's not anything dogmatic. But the rule is, Scripture has one meaning. And we believe the meaning rests with the author. It's the intent of the author that defines the meaning for us. Now, when I say that, 
you have to process this through your theology. And your theology says this. There is a human author, little a, inspired by a divine author, capital A, who gave that text meaning. And it's God's meaning that He put there that you and I have to understand is in the text and we have to pull it out of there. And it's not dependent upon the reader finding it, or I should say it's not dependent on the reader's interpretation of it. There is a meaning that is there that our interpretation has to understand or we are wrong. That's what makes this rule so important. It has one meaning, and it happens to be God's meaning. And you who are reading the Bible want to learn from God. And therefore... You want to do the work of exegesis, ascertaining the original meaning of the text. Because that's God's inspired meaning through the human author. This is an important rule. Never forget it. So here's my big point after all that. Uh, scripture has one meaning, and it's the meaning intended by the author, big and little a. The next rule that is important to understand is this one right here. Interpret words in harmony with their meaning in the times of the author. Now, this is a big rule because language changes. Language is fluid. So when I was in the Army, um, I was a, a roommate with a guy that came from California, and I remember having a conversation with him and uh, I was talking about something, I don't know, and he, he said this, he said, that's bad. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean that's bad? This is really good. He goes, no, that's what I mean. Bad is good. And I went, what? I wasn't from California, so I wasn't cool. So the word bad actually turned out to be a word good if used in the common vernacular in California, and I was completely unfamiliar with it. Language changes, it shifts, it takes on uh, different meanings over time. When you're reading scripture, there was a meaning in the time of the author and you have to identify that in the time of the author, not through your own cultural lens. I'm going to show you an example of this. This is 2 Thessalonians 2.15. It says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, I, I, want, I use this one because this is a personal thing that happened to me when I became a, a pastor for, in my first church. So this was a church, that, uh, one of those churches that had two pulpits, and they had one pulpit over here for all the... Uh, people to give announcements or sing or would do whatever else. And then they had a second pulpit over on this side, and this was the big pulpit, and uh, this was where the pastor preached. So you only use this pulpit to preach and read Scripture, and that one over there was for all the mundane things. And uh, I never used a pulpit when I preached. I always stood before people like I'm standing before you today, and I never used a pulpit. And there were some people that actually got furious with me and they were against me entirely 
and they came to me with this verse, and they said, listen, here's what God says. Stand firm and hold to the traditions. And our tradition is two pulpits, and you preach from this one. And I went, what? The traditions in 60 A.D.? Are the traditions in your church in America in 2000? What? You can't do that to Scripture. Paul isn't saying hold to your traditions and we have communion every Sunday. He's not saying hold to your traditions and we have church at 10 o'clock. In fact, he's not talking about church tradition at all. He's talking about teachings and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul is saying, hold to the tradition of Scripture. And when you read that, you have to read it as Paul was using that word, not out of your framework of your tradition. Otherwise, you butcher the text that God has written. Now, that happens a lot, a lot in Scripture. So, Peter actually, in one of Peter's texts, would have, would have written this. He said, and, and, and uh, I think it's Christ, was hanged on a tree. Hanged on a tree. Now, if you were reading that through our generation's eyes, you would be thinking of a rope and a noose and a horse and a cowboy slapping the behind and <laughs> hanged on a tree. Right? Because that's how we use the concept of being hanged on a tree. But Peter didn't mean that at all. He meant Christ the crucified. You have to read with the idea of what the first century authors were meaning when they wrote that text. That's that rule. It's really important uh, as, you, as you're just generally reading and scoping through Scripture. Now here's, a, here's another one. And I have several examples of this because this is where this is this is really really important and yet it's one that we butcher all the time okay here's one that we we mess up here's the rule interpret a verse or a passage in harmony with its context and and uh, the error that is made and this is a rule against that is that you read a verse and you lift it and you use it independent of the surrounding verses so it kind of goes with writing, right? In a paragraph, there's no, uh, all the sentences deal with one point and there's no extraneous material in there. But if you take a verse out of its context, you can make it actually say anything you want it to say. And we've done that, by the way, with this, uh, with this text right here. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Does anybody know what that is? Oh, you all have heard it. Here's what it says. Abstain from every form of of evil. Now, I do not know how you were taught this verse, but I can tell you how I was taught it. And as I've taught this class through the years, I can tell you how other people uh, had this verse applied to their lives. And the application or the meaning of this verse has come from the King James Version of the Bible, which said, abstain from all appearance of evil. And that King James writing has been retranslated in our day in most of our Bibles to abstain from every form of evil, but the interpretation still comes out of abstain from every appearance of evil. So this is how I was taught it. You never 
counsel a woman alone in your office. Because someone will see you counseling her alone and they will presume things in their minds uh, regardless of how true or not they are. You never walk into a tavern because someone will see you go into a tavern and they will assume you're a, you're a drunk. You're drinking to excess. So you don't go into a tavern because you might offend somebody. Uh, that's how I was taught it. You abstain from all appearance of evil. You live a, a lily-white life so everybody sees you're a good person. In recent years, I heard one that came from a camp in Nebraska, by the way, and they were teaching this, this concept in this way. Never drink root beer out of a brown bottle because people will assume you're drinking beer, not root beer. So you never drink root beer out of a brown bottle. I can tell you that verse doesn't mean anything like the way it's been taught. In fact, all I have to do is illustrate this with Jesus Christ. The Pharisees agreed with that concept, and they, they looked at Jesus and said, birds of a feather flock together and you hang around with sinners. Because he actually hung around with Matthew or Zacchaeus. And you know what Jesus said to them? Are you kidding me? It's the sick that need a doctor. How can doctors do their work if they're not with sick people? You have to show up where the sinner is if you're going to make a difference in their lives. And yet, as in the church, we've crystallized this and we've, we've said, don't go to those places. Don't ever look bad. Our Savior looked bad because he was on mission. So when this verse gets taught in that way, it's lifted out of its context and it's being mistaught. So let me show you the context. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. What's the context of that last phrase? Is it drinking root beer? Is it going into taverns? No, it's listening to biblical teachers. Do not quench the Spirit. Why was Paul writing that? Because in the first century, God gifted people with spiritual gifts. And one of those gifts was the Spirit of prophecy. And so you don't quench the Spirit, you don't despise prophecies. So if some person gets up in the church and says, I have a word from God, you don't immediately scoff. You don't immediately say, oh, give me a break. I've known Johnny since he was two. How can God be speaking through Johnny? You don't just throw him off. But you don't just believe everything he says either. You don't just listen to every Bible teacher and say they must be right because they're Bible teachers after all. So you test everything. And you hold fast what is good. You abstain from every form of evil. This is a passage that's telling you what you need to be doing today as you're listening to me. It's talking to you about what you do every single Sunday. 
when you listen to your preacher, when you listen to your Sunday school teacher, every week when you're listening to your Bible teacher in your school, you have to be a critical listener. You cannot believe everything I say just because I say it. I'm a man, I'm a human, I make mistakes. And you have to test what I say and what I claim God says by the test of Scripture. And this is a text that's telling each of us to be critical listeners. Don't be sponges. Don't soak up everything that comes your way. But put a test to it. And had we listened to this, we would have rejected the idea of drinking root beer out of brown bottles because that's absurd. And that, that, that teaching violates the text it's quoting. And they've ripped a verse out of its context and misused it for their own purposes. And it's utterly wrong. That's why this rule is so important. You have to leave the verse in the context. There's another verse. Here's another example. It's the good FCA verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you take that verse out of its context, it's absurd and wrong. I can remember when I first heard this verse used in an athletic contest. I was, uh, I was about your age, and I went to a weightlifting thing. I think it was put on by... Uh, FCA or Campus Crusade or one of those guys, and these guys were lifting weights, and the guy in the stage was a vehemoth, uh, huge muscles everywhere, and he had this bar down there, and he had all these huge weights on the side of it, and he, he got to the point where he strained this last thing up, and he, he set it down, and then he came to the audience, and he said, now I want you to know my life's verse is I can do all things for Christ who, through Christ who strengthens me. So I'm going to put more weight on this bar that I've never lifted before. And he put weights on the, both sides of it, and he strained it up, and he pushed and strained, and he got it all the way to the top, and he held it there, and he dropped it, and the audience exploded. Yay! And I said to myself, well, let's put five more pounds on there. If you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, try five more. But you know what Paul's talking about? He's not talking about, I can do all things. No, you have human limitations. And you can't do all things and you might as well know it. What this verse is talking about is being able to get through the circumstances of life with zero finances or the circumstances of life with tons of finances. And in either situation and all the situations in between, to live rightly before God. And so Paul, in speaking of getting through times of poverty and getting through times of wealth, said, I have learned in whatever circumstance I'm in to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That has nothing to do with athletics. And yet that's how we use it. Eh. We've ripped the verse out of its context and made it say whatever we want it to say. And then we, with audacity, claim this is from God. When God was never saying any such thing. That's why this rule is important. One more, and this is one I personally like because you hear it on TV a lot from the preachers manipulating uh, you to send them money. 
so here's what they say. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, I want you to know going in that I believe this verse is true. And if I were to ask you, do you believe this verse is true, you'd have to say, yes, of course it's true. And yet at the same time, and I'm going to rock your world a little bit here, you do not believe you reap what you sow. You do not believe that in every context. Because as Christians, we believe in mercy. You know what mercy by definition is? It's not getting what you deserve. And as a Christian, you believe in grace. And you know what the definition of grace is? Getting what you don't deserve. We believe in mercy and grace. God actually defines himself as a merciful and gracious God. Not giving us what we deserve, giving us what we don't deserve. And this verse does not apply everywhere. And if you're going to read this verse, you have to keep it in its context. Or else you've misunderstood it. Because as Christians, we know full well the very last thing we want is to get what we deserve. We do not want this verse to be true, and it isn't in Christ. So the question is, how did Paul mean this? And when he wrote it, what was he talking about? And if we're going to understand this verse correctly, we're going to understand it in context. Thus ends session one. When we come back from our break, I'm going to start with the process of how to study the Bible so that you hit the bullseye and you can say, this is what God is saying in this text. This is all preparatory to that. This is all background stuff. This is all introduction. And now we get to the heart of my material for today and next week. I so appreciate your attention 